Welcome to Surf Stories, a podcast brought to you by the Florida Surf Film Festival and Surfing's Evolution and Preservation Foundation. I'm your host, John Brooks, and with me as always is co-host Kevin Miller. Kevin, how are you today? I'm good. I'm, I'm impressed how you're keeping it together right now because you just worked a double at the fire station and uh, am I allowed to say where? It's all good. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, he's yeah. at the Orlando International Airport taking care of folks who aren't feeling well before and after travel and uh well obviously you you've got your hands full out there but um after a double you're sitting here talking to me trying to help uh promote this podcast we're doing we did with uh, ashton goggins yes yes well that's why they make caffeine and sugar and i've had ample supply both this morning so i saw you eat those two cinnamon rolls (laughs) thank you for the two cinnamon rolls (laughs) i thought you were gonna tip over into i thought i was gonna have to call the fire department No, it's all good. But um, yeah, we're excited to talk to Ashton. Um, man, a, a true renaissance man. If I know. There man. ever was one in he, our sport. He's he's taken a, a, a love for writing and at this point now video, production, directing, editing. I mean, taking on ambitious projects and getting them across the finish line. Yeah. Somebody has got to give this guy an award. I don't know. I I'm really impressed with all of his hard work. Let's make one and give it to him. Yeah, I swear. I mean, the Andy the Gog- movie alone. The Goggins. The Andy movie <laughs> that was meant to be made. Oh, yeah. Uh, in four parts, um, produced by Stab and released on the uh, platform, the Stab Premium platform was, I mean, groundbreaking. We, we took all four part parts and boiled them down into two uh, segments, showed them. You'll hear a little bit more about this during the podcast, but... Um, uh, what a COVID project right there. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine when you are growing up on the Gulf Coast of Florida, uh, you probably don't um, foresee yourself, uh, you know, going to going to school in New York for writing and becoming the editor of Stab Magazine and uh, eventually living on the North Shore, which is where Ashton's at now. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, th- some of these projects that he has put together are just phenomenal. Proud to call him a Floridian. Absolutely. And also, I thought I was surf-starved on the east coast of Florida. Oh, God, yeah. That kid. The Gulf Coast is brutal. Right. So you'll get to hear about Ashton's story. Um, What a human. Um, And uh, we just love having the ability to chat with him and then push this out there because, uh, you know, he's a storyteller first and foremost. Absolutely. So let's get into it. All right. Been surfing a bunch, yeah. I mean, the, we live pretty close to a bunch of little, like, sort of uncrowded waves in a little corner oh. of the North Shore that is really, like, kind of nice and, like, tucked away. Um, and then we can head over to, like, the sort of the, the east side of Waimea whenever we need to, if we need to go and hang out at the houses and surf those stretch of waves. That's great. So it's a nice little balance between, like, outer reef sort of, like, uncrowded waves and, like, heavier, like, shore-poundy logs, pipe set like sandbar sessions yeah but it's a lot <laughs> really? it's the first year that i have not gotten hurt within like the first month or two of the season i usually like leave hawaii like limping back to california right and then spend like three months in a seasonal depression like trying to get healthy so it feels good to be like feeling the benefits of the season instead of the the consequences well, it's, but it's probably easier uh, too living there to not maybe feel like you have to go quite as hard 
You maybe let a wave yeah, go by still... when you're not in the right spot because you're like, I'm here, you know, rather than like, well, I, I got 10 days before I go back to California. But then you sit on the balcony at Pipe and you watch Justin Quintal get like the most insane oh, yeah. psycho chip in yeah. pipe wave that anyone could ever dream of after like sitting on the balcony with him, like talking about what he wanted to do out there for like 10 days. He's, I swear he manifested that wave. Those moments feel like you're like, just because you live here doesn't mean you have an excuse to not serve. Yeah. Like, oh, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing? That's great. But man. yeah. Yeah, I was super stoked um, for Justin to get that wave. Like that's a career big wave. winner for Quinny. I can't yeah. tell you how many people came up to me because we're like very clearly like blood brothers. You know, we're like Floridians in exile. Yeah. When we're out here. And so many people like, you know, people on the Vans team that hadn't really spent that much time with him. They were all like in the same house together at Pipe that the WSL and Vans are sharing for the season. OK. And Quinny's like packing pipe waves on his longboard and then going out and fishing and bringing back like giant hauls of fish and cooking up fish tacos and like a bunch of the, the team were like how does no one know how radical justin quintal is and then like two days later he got that wave Sick. i was like that's the trash gator <laughs> that was amazing what a wave to uh, second reef roll in just a bomb on that inside reef too just oh god it was so fast if he would have and the first barrel was enough if he would have just oh. done the chip in and gotten the first barrel blown out to flats, that would have been enough on its own. But to get the whole, that second section, was he was so deep. It's funny, those he had two like like pretty identical boards from Josh Keogh, a 7.5 and an 8.5, those like swallowtail channel bottom, like yeah. fucking wow. beautiful, like weird guns. And they were just sitting in the, the downstairs room of the Vance house for like two weeks. And every time you'd walk by him, you'd just look at him and be like, Jesus Christ, like those things scare the shit out of you. Like they, <laughs> there's only one wave that those boards make sense on, and it's like that wave. Yeah. And when I saw that clip. And also like the 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 like behind the scenes context of like Jimmy Wilson being in the van's house, like watching the Jaguars come back from fucking whatever, like twenty seven zero at yeah. the same time. It was like there's a lot going on for the Florida kids there <laughs> that day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I hate to use this phrase, living the dream, but I've, I've been to the North Shore one time, and uh, I would like to go back. I've always kind of, you know, probably like you, just, I don't even know if you've done this, but I, like, I believe other Floridians have avoided it because they know it's crowded, and you know you're going to be fighting for waves. So I did finally go. I had a great time. I caught some waves, and now I kind of get it, and I'm like, wow. It must be just a paradise over there. Or is it worn off yet? Or what What are you feeling right now? No, no. This place is... I've fallen in love with Hawaii more and more every single season that I've spent here. And I've stretched those seasons out as long as I possibly could. I can't tell you how many projects I reverse engineered to do in Hawaii from November to February over the last few years just so that I could be in one place that I was like completely content yeah. and not like FOMOing that I was on a trip somewhere, which I feel in California and in Florida a lot of the time, wherever I've lived, it's the only place that I've ever been like, fuck it, I don't care what else is going on, I'm fine here. Nice. And with uh, my wife's from Brazil and I, I always imagined that I would eventually live abroad at a certain point and like raise kids abroad and all this, but when we got married to do the citizenship and all that, it's, you know, we have to spend at least another five or six years here before we can do that and Otherwise, it's a nightmare for her to travel and come back into the country. And yeah, 
having kids and stuff, we just have to sort of like focus, handle the next like five or six years in a place that we're totally happy to be and then consider our options once that happens. And I don't know, the more time that I spend in Hawaii, the less I can imagine living somewhere else, at least most of the year, um, especially just for what I do for like raw materials and characters and access and stories like this place is a bottomless pit of like the most interesting characters from every generation of surfing that are still alive or the kids that are coming up it's like i feel like it's the easiest place to do what i do yeah. and a place that gets overlooked for about eight months out of the year a lot of times because there aren't people that are within surf media that live here and are based here to cover it it's just sort of the the, the only thing that matters for a certain period of time yeah and that attention is shared between the locals and a lot of the visiting pros. And then it is sort of disappears unless you see like a couple waves from Alamoana during the, you know, South Swell season or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping to, to be able to, um, to cover Hawaii and do more stories in Hawaii as well um, because I'm here. And it's not just like something where I'm like flying in during the season and trying to do all the stuff while everything else is going on. Um, I'm able to sort of like really like dig in here. Um, and it's amazing. I can like ride my bike literally 10 minutes up the road in the morning and like have a cup of coffee and talk about like some book on Native American history that Al Chapman's reading in his shaping room. And then, you know, run into John Pizel and like as he's like coming up with some like new carbon fiber board he's been working on with John. It's like wow. within 50 yards of each other. Mm. Um, so it feels really... like a really like special place. Yeah. As far as like just agree. waking up every day and interacting. I just um, I was with that was always my favorite part of it. I wanted to be like in the mix with everybody because if you're gonna tell stories with it, you got to have access to the raw materials. Yeah, man. I I was with John walking to the car, maybe from Pipe and Ken Bradshaw is walking by with either a kid or a grandkid, and uh, I was starstruck. I was like, you know, there's few people where I don't really, you know. But anyway, I'm like Ken Bradshaw. And then you go down to the the place where you get the bagels, or, or what, where's the what's the name of the breakfast joint, John? Oh, Ted's. Yeah, Bakery. we were at Ted's and Martin Potter's in there. Who else was in there? I don't know. It was crazy. It was, Every, everybody's in there. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> so in there. What I what I love about the North Shore though is there was a day at Pipe like maybe two weeks ago, right before the shootout, and it was like pumping all morning. It was the, it was one of those days that everyone's like, oh, they should have run the contest. They should have run the contest, and it was just like three hours of the best local kids that were like getting ready for the contest, all free surfing. And that kid, Joey Johnston, who he's like an underground North shore kid growing up as a Grom and then had to make some sort of like tough decisions and ended up going to school in San Luis Obispo in California and like has had this like banner year, but it's like 10 foot. Joey gets this crazy barrel. And as I'm walking up the beach, watching this happen, I realized that, I'm like saying hi to people and all of a sudden I like lock eyes with fucking Matthew McConaughey and Matthew McConaughey is just like sitting on the butt on the beach just like hanging out nude no one gives a fuck like no one's even like walking up to him trying to take selfies like no one cares Joey gets blown out of this tube and comes in and they like fucking chair him up the beach and it's like this whole spectacle and I was like that's it right there like doesn't matter wow. who you are when you come here it's like it's what happens in the water it's kind of like uh, Smyrna. All yeah. right, all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't get starstruck very often, but I, I wanted to just like sit down next to him while that session was going and like put a mic on him and be like, let's just like just narrate this this heat for me. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. For any fan of uh, surfing, it is a special treat. There's all kinds of uh, 
in your face. It co- it all, all it jumps off the page of the magazine, off the TV, right in right in front of you. It's a really special place. And I think it's also a place that like teaches you a lot of lessons. Like if I don't know, I feel like there's certain like places that if you spend time there and you experience it, it prepares you for any other experience that has similar variables. Like if you live in New York, you're prepared for any city in the world when you travel. And I feel like living in Hawaii, especially as a Howley kid, like, and a kid from Florida, like, it makes you feel small and like you are not a majority as far as the culture goes. And it forces you to, like, interact with a culture that is not yours. And that requires, like, a certain amount of, like, humility and, you know, getting over feeling awkward, saying hi and introducing yourself and reintroducing yourself and telling people your name over again if they forget it and just smiling and looking people in the eye wherever you go and being like open to it. Cause you see people come here and just like curl over and like feel intimidated by it because it's foreign to them. Uh, and I feel like that's a very like strangely like limiting uh, attitude to move through the world of being like, oh, it didn't feel like it was like a open like tourist destination. You know, it wasn't. Everyone wasn't there to serve me. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, man. All right, so let's go back because we usually do a little formatted chat with people and uh, find out how you found your way into what I would describe as uh, editor, uh, writer, content producer, filmmaker. I mean, it, it's amazing if you take a look now where you are, but like, how did that all start? Where did you get your kind of mojo from? And, uh, give us, give us a little review, man. Um, I grew up on the Gulf coast of Florida in Nokomis, just South of Sarasota, like whatever Southwest Florida. And my dad is a surfer, grew up on Longboat Key, just North of where I was born and was sort of one of the early generation of guys on the Gulf Coast that surfed, getting like early Hobie pop-outs from like the, you know, the, the hook and tackle store yeah, in the early mm-hmm. 60s. And so when I was born, there was this small group of guys from that era that were still around that my dad was close with um, that were, that they probably left the biggest impression on me as far as my entire life, as far as surfing goes. There was this guy, Juan Rodriguez, who's still around, who makes One World Surfboards, who... Him and Jack Reeves grew up together, glass and surfboards. Jack Reeves has been Dick Brewer's glasser since the late 60s, early 70s. Like, went to jail in Titusville together for surfing Sebastian Inlet in 1969 and stuff. And as a little kid, when I started getting into surfing, you know, it was because my dad was taking me and all my, you know, my friends, my brother and all my brother's friends in this little neighborhood were surfing. And so I had two points of entry into, like, the culture. One was through surf videos and hanging out at the surf shop and like buying whatever VHS tape we could afford with the change that we could scramble and like interacting with what was going on at that moment in the early 90s and then getting dropped off during the summer at Juan's shop and just sweeping the shaping bay and like helping him make wood fins and trying not to get in the way and just like listening you know my dad was a mailman and he would come home from his job every day with just like these stories that people had told him and it like taught me the value of just like shutting up when you're around older people and listening to whatever the fuck they want to tell you Hmm. and with a guy like Juan you know these these are people who haven't had a ton of people come in and 
express interest in their experience and you know what they've learned over the years and this was a guy who was like doing like Velzi's glass jobs when there was like the big resurgence in the 90s like if you wanted period correct surfboards you went to Juan he has the largest fin template collection in the entire world from the like beginning of like Tom Blake putting a fin on a board to now every fin template every wave system every obscure fucking 70s weird bolt-on fin like mm. the archive and so I would spend my days in there just like looking at, you know, the VHS collection that he had of all the Bruce Brown movies and like going to get him lunch and sitting and having him tell me stories and shit. And so I became just as interested in like the history and the culture that had occurred way before even my dad's time, really. It was like, it just was, I became super enamored of it as a kid. And that became like my, I don't know, it was like the subcultural capital that I traded in as a kid. It was but rare over there. I was. Though. It's kind of rare. It was super rare. Yeah. I think about it now after traveling around and spending more time with people my age and the kids nowadays and thinking about how they get exposed to culture. And I recognize how unique it was for me to like get brought to like dinner parties when I was 12. And instead of them like putting me in a room with a bunch of other little kids, they like plopped us down in front of a TV and put on like Beyond the Boundaries or Searching for Tom Curran or like Sonny Miller's movies. While they went and partied, you know, it was like right. we just got to sit and watch the guys surf videos. How old are you now? What, um, year, what year were you born? I was born in 1984. Okay. 38. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and also, like, the fact that there wasn't surf all the time, being a surfer, quote unquote, on the Gulf Coast was like an academic pursuit as much, almost more than it oh, yeah. was an actual, like, physical one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, it was, was also you know, it was, a pursuit it, of anybody who owned a boat, so you could scurf behind it. For crying out loud! I mean, I know the feeling. I'm from Orlando, you know, and it's just yeah. anything you can ride skateboard wise, anything, anything, you know. Yeah, and that was it. It was like we had to like go out there and f and find it at that time. You know, this is like before the internet, so it was just spending time in the local little like first couple surf shops that opened up, or the first skate shops, and. And being exposed to it like firsthand instead of just through the interface of a phone, I feel like is just so important because you're put into that environment, which feels so, I think for like the average, you know, suburban kid or parent or whatever, walking into a skate shop in the early 90s or a surf shop felt pretty foreign as a retail experience. But that was like the world that I wanted to feel comfortable, you know? And so... That was like, and it's, that was also like for us, I think it was also our experience at the surf industry too is in Florida, you know, it was like yeah. being, you know, getting a job at a shop when you were young, getting your first pass to surf expo, going to surf expo and there being premieres and, you know, seeing pro surfers for the first time. And at that time it was, you know, early industry boom. So you would go to surf expo and you'd have that same range of opportunity to meet people that I was just talking about. You'd have Velzi and Mickey Munoz and all these guys that were getting flown in because, I mean, sure, it was because Surf Tech was doing models with them, but, like, they were there. Yeah. And meanwhile, you had, like, Andy Irons and Corey and Shay and Cormac and those guys, like, tearing down the Lost booth at the end of the Sunday or whatever, like, partying. And it was just like, holy shit, this world is insane, and, like, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, it was pretty early on. And then my, my dad stayed really supportive of it throughout our entire lives. He was the ESA director for Southwest Florida with this guy Skip Beach for probably four or five years, like dragging a container and a trailer down with the tent and the blow horns and 
dealing with parents that were upset about their kids not getting the scores. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, on the Gulf Coast, if you can imagine right. how, like, last-minute, like, fire drill uh, of a surf contest you can run on the Gulf Coast. I mean, we all um, saw what, what conditions they ran in, was it North Carolina or Virginia Beach this last qualifying season? It was like knee, oh, yeah, it was yeah, like knee yeah. high on the beach. Yeah, I mean, good Lord, I can only imagine what you guys were doing with. I'm not often impressed with, like, meme like, cheeky internet content, but when Mikey from Stab was doing the, like, this is pro surfing post from those little waves with, like, back, it was the best shit ever. <laughs> but right. I hope that, I, I do think that those, those moments keep the smoke bomb alive that the east coast is not the best place in the mainland of the u.s to live and be a surfer yeah yeah i kind of i kind of feel a badge of uh i don't know i made it i made it on the east coast you know what yeah, i'm saying 100 percent. I mean, john's a transplant he's been to the west coast and lived for a while and surfed competitively i just feel proud i don't know anyway. i feel like east coast surfers think... are maybe the most appreciative in the world oh yeah full stoke on yeah. small waves if i would yeah, if I was from New Smyrna or Jacksonville or St. Augustine, and my dad still lived there, I do feel like there's a real chance that I would have probably ended up back in Florida, still doing what I'm doing, but just because I recognize how easy it is to do it there too, and to have like a very, like, high quality of life and an affordable quality of life near the beach that's great for raising kids, and that you have access to international airports that can bring you. To a million good waves yeah. in a fairly quick period of time. Not too bad. Yeah. Uh, not too bad. No, I yeah. like it here. I actually don't mind it. I don't mind small waves. John knows this. Uh, so, yeah, dude, uh, wh- what happened to where you were like, I think I want to write an article for a magazine or work for a magazine? How did that go? Um, I'd always kind of wanted to be a writer. My dad was always super, like, romantic about being a writer. Yeah. And I think secretly that's still what he i think he's my dad's done all types of things a lot of them like questionably uh legal (laughs) but most of like his life i think he's been more interested in doing sculpture and writing Mm -hmm. than anything else he's just never had the like time or opportunity to commit himself to it sure and just in the last few years he's really like dove into it but i know that i got that from him and also like i don't know if my dad told me but similar to his job that it just it gave him the ability to just interact with like everyday people like on a different level because of the dynamic of their relationship i felt like being a writer even just being like a newspaper like whatever beat reporter that it gave you a reason to go and talk to people that you wouldn't otherwise have a reason to and i just felt like that was like such a superpower like if i wanted to go talk to an a writer or an artist or a filmmaker that i was interested in I could come up with an excuse to do that. And I just couldn't think of anything else that would allow me to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, it took me a while to commit to it, though. I was always still, when I was, until I was about 25, I was always interested in doing something in the surf industry. I started the surf shop with some friends in Sarasota when I was like 19. I remember and that. we did that for a few years. And then I left to go to school in New York to be a writer. But I just started doing like some random like beat reporting for like the local New York Times newspaper when I was there, just doing like community events and like if they were doing like a Christmas carol fucking festival at the local like uh, 
whatever VFW hall, I would like go and cover it and shoot yeah. photos and it would run in like the, you know, the early two thousands newspaper. Nice paying your dues. And so I was interested in writing. Yeah. And I, so I took some community college classes and just was like, all right, I think, and this is one of those like weird facts that I feel like they keep from you when you're in high school. But right before I decided to go to college, someone told me like the acceptance rate for, tr uh, for transfer students in, in their third year from any school with good grades is like, 10 times higher than right. getting in your first year out of high school. So if you go to community college and you get good grades, you can pretty much get into any fucking school you want. And so I got really good grades in community college and had good relationships with all my like writing professors. And I did this random photo trip up to New York City with Larry Mayo, who was my shaper at the time. Yeah. He's been like, he was probably the other biggest influence on me as far as in like my adolescence and early adulthood. At the time, Larry was married to a woman that owned the social and the um, barbecue bar, the other venue, the barbecue bar, and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, and so he was living in Orlando and had a shop there. And so I would drive to Orlando, and we would go see like Jose Gonzalez or the Mountain Goats or the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and like hang out and have these big nights in Orlando, and then wake up in the morning have a couple mimosas and then go into his shaping room. And he was at that time kind of the only guy that was like really tuned in to building sort of like all the alternative boards that I was into as far as hulls and bonzers and twin fins and like sort of whatever involvement era longboards and stuff. Yeah. And so we would just geek out and build boards and it was like a really cool time. So he was going up to New York cause his sister was getting married and, his brother-in-law at the time had this spot in Soho. He's like, I'll come up to New York. We'll go out to Montauk. We'll surf. We'll shoot some photos. And oh, yeah. We did this like six-day trip to New York. I spent like 24 hours in New York City and then went out to Montauk and surfed. And then we drove up to Rhode Island. And I met this great family, the uh, Tyus family, who ended up being like a second family to me. Mm. And after like five days, I went back to Florida and I was like, I'm going to New York City. Like I'm applying to schools. We actually went into Mollusk, too, that trip. They had just oh, opened nice. the first new, Mollusk yeah. shop in New York. And they had just opened their doors. Chris and Mike and those guys were hanging out in there. And we hung out with those guys for the afternoon. And I went back, applied to, like, NYU and Columbia and all of this, the CUNY program and then the new school. And I ended up getting in everywhere, but the new school ended up giving me, like, a full scholarship because I was poor. Nice. And it was like baffling. I remember getting my dad coming home from the, the post office, like they like handed, you know, like whoever our mail carrier was, like went and gave her the acceptance letter and he like bolted home. Um, Touchdown. And so, yeah, my brother and I ended up moving up to New York and I worked at Mollusk for like the time that I was there. And that was really where I started to sort of piece together that you could do a little bit of everything, that you could be a writer, you could be interested in like real journalism and maybe still make surf films or work in like the more subcultural aspect of what was going on at that time within the sort of board design space and the resurgence of like all those sort of shapers from San Diego and California that were starting to build boards and get credit for it again. Rich Pavel and uh, what Richard Kenman was doing with all the Simmons boards, like all that stuff was happening right at that time. And it was like this huge blast of like input all of a sudden having all these shapers around and all this stuff coming through New York City that I was completely surprised by and at the same time going to school at the new school, which is a school that's built around the idea of having like working professionals as professors there instead of like like lifelong academics 
and especially for like a writing school, they bring in like New York Times critics and Time Magazine staff reporters and like all, you know, at that time, Christopher Hitchens was teaching there. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I like that guy. And so you could sit and have, you know, the classes that I was able to sit in on and it was like this huge exposure to like all these different worlds. And I ended up uh, interning at this literary journal for a while and sort of, it's called N plus one and got like another sort of glimpse into publishing and that world. And sure. A lot of it seemed sort of overwhelming. There was a point where I was like applying for like a fact checking job at the New Yorker and like thinking I was going to live in New York forever <laughs> and just do it. And a bunch, I was like, there was like all these stuff that fell apart after we after I graduated college and my brother and my roommate at the time left and we were all like just sort of over it at the time I wanted to like burn New York to the ground when I left. <laughs> yeah. There's no and way you were staying in New York. I mean, knowing you now. No, I was. Like the fifth winter, I was like, fuck this. This is insane. Like I'm from Florida. It's fucking 20 degrees and it's still wet and slushy. Yeah, I was over it. It's funny though. Now I actually would live there again just because wetsuits are so good and I feel like I understand it better. But at the time I was like a poor kid, you know, and being poor in New York for a certain amount of time is fun. But being poor in New York for a long period of time is embarrassing. Uh, And... Yeah, so I moved back to Florida to take a job at the same New York Times paper as like an arts critic and then randomly got offered this job to write about food and ended up being a food writer for like two or three years. Nice. Um, And then I moved out to San Francisco to write uh, copy for GoPro and to work at Mollusk out there and really just as an excuse to move to San Francisco. And over the first two winters I was there, I ended up spending some time with like Lewis Samuels and... He introduced me to Matt Warshaw and Justin Houseman and a few people. Um, and then actually, that's who, Lewis is the one who introduced me to Derek and Chaz when they were launching Beach Grit. It was like, these guys approached me about this project. They want to make like a sort of vice of surfing. Would you be interested in doing it? And I was like, oh, cool. Like, that sounds rad. I, I liked what Derek did with Stab. And I just read Chaz's book. And so I reached out to those guys. And at the time, it was like me and Rory Parker were the first two writers for those guys. And very quickly... Warshaw introduced me to Todd Perdonovich at Surfer, and we had a conversation. Todd was up there running a marathon, and I was working at Old Navy at the time as a copywriter, so I just, like, biked over to where he was, like, finishing up the marathon at the ferry building, and we sat down and had a conversation, and he was like, when can you start? Like, we'll just make up a job for you. Oh, no way. And I was like, okay. At the time, I had a girlfriend up there, and my brother and I were living in a house, and I had a dog, and it was, like, a total, like, uprooting. And my brother was like, it's cool. Like, we'll handle the house. I'll take care of the dog. Like, just deal with it. And so I just bought bought this, like, old F-150 off this guy in Sacramento that was, like, sitting in his garage and put a big old military camper on it that was, like, this steel bulletproof camper. (laughs) And drove down to Southern California and lived out of my truck for, like, a year and a half just working at Surfer. And it was, like, the dream that I'd always, I'd always, like, wanted, like, imagine, like, oh, that'd be so cool to work for Surfer Magazine. But, like had no idea what it would require, like, or what it entailed or how to do it, you know? And I've, as an outsider, it took me a long time to get over, like, being willing to go and, like, dive into the Southern California surf industry. It was, like, something that, like, really just fucking gave me the screamers as a, you know, in my 20s. I was just like, ugh, couldn't imagine. Uh, And then being down there in that position, it, it... was a diplomatic space that I was able to sort of meet everyone okay. and spend time with people and sort of get to know all the surfers who now I've you know known for like 10 years and built relationships with. But that was like the first, 
real like surf job in my opinion that I ever had that was like it put me in a, a role that I could sort of do what I was interested in in surfing yeah right good well what what was your first story that you worked on and uh, felt really good about that maybe sort of like oh. said all right I've I can check one box here Starting out, it was like I did a couple stories just about like style and big wave surfing. And I did a profile on CJ Nelson that I was super excited about because the surfer had never really done any longboard stuff. And CJ was just coming back after like pretty dark times. He was he was just getting sober and was filming for one of George Trim's movie, that movie Forbidden Trim. Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we showed it. No, we did yeah. not. We never did oh, show Oh, we it. never did. That's right. Yeah. We talked about it. You guys should show that movie. I tell people that movie all the time. But I, it was actually a surfer star. I got sent down to write about George Trim and them filming that movie down to Mexico. And they were staying at CJ's house. And I'd met CJ when I was young doing longboard contests. And yeah. him and I were always like kind of cut from the same cloth. Like I, I was like so immersed in 60s surf culture. But I was also just as much of like a little like hardcore kid and punk rock kid and skate kid when I was a teenager just like CJ was and so we always kind of came from the same references and we connected in Mexico and he was telling me what he was doing he was designing boards with this guy Ian Chisholm in Australia and we like geeked out on boards and I ended up surfing with him for a few days and then hung out with him in Santa Cruz and I ended up writing this profile about him that it he always talked about how it was like very validating because he felt like he had another chapter in it, like he, but he just didn't know what that looked like. And then that profile came out and he ended up launching his business and getting sponsored. Amazing. He's now like a total like DIY self-made, like, I don't know. He's a mogul. Right. He's got his, his brand that he does with Thunderbolt, um, are to me the best, like whatever alternative construction epoxy longboards that have ever been made. Nice. And I see them everywhere. Um, but yeah, so that, 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 that project was very like, it was personally satisfying because I felt like I was doing a profile about someone that deserved it, who I looked up to as a surfer and who I felt like had been overlooked by like mainstream surfing to a certain extent. And then the next story was, it was really a whole issue of surfer. But the reason I first became interested in working at Surfer at that time was because they had done a big issue with a cover that was Je had a Jeff McFetridge graphic on it. And Can you repeat I was that? like, oh, the Jeff who? Oh, sorry. They did Jeff McFetridge. Okay. Um, the San Francisco artist. He's done, he, he was like part of that beautiful losers generation, but he did the duct tape logo a few years back. That's like the, the roll of tape with the Surfer going through it. Yeah. He's a like he's probably the most like successful graphic artist out of the like skate world. He's like Spike Jones level like internationally famous. Gotcha. But yeah, they did a cover and it was this it was like a black and white cover and it said addicted underneath it and it had this guy like carrying a surfboard on his back. Um and I was like, fuck, it's so sick that they did they had a cover with Jeff and I opened it up and it turned out that this guy that I had worked with at Mullis, Jim Newitt, had taken over as their art director, who was this English longboarder who him and I just the same thing. We were interested in like kind of the same stuff as far as the 60s stuff goes, subcultural aspects of surfing. Like we just like resonated with each other. I mean, when he was at Mullis, we talked about starting a little magazine. And so I hit Jim and was like, I can't believe how sick the new issue of Surfer was. I didn't even know that you'd gotten the job. And so we started talking and he's like, oh, you should talk to Todd. Warshaw told me I should talk to Todd. And then... I mean, that was how like this whole the whole connection came. But the next year we were doing the big issue, and I pitched a 
profile on Raymond Pettibon that I knew that I wouldn't be able to do, but that Jamie Brissick would be able to do because he knew him. And so we were able to send Jamie Brissick to interview Raymond Pettibon and licensed Pettibon for the cover of Surfer, which for me is like a surfer and like a punk rock kid who was obsessed with, you know, Black Flag and all of the stuff that he did in the 80s. It was like this like perfect collision of worlds. Yeah, give our and then I got to give, give our listeners a little bio on Pettibon. So Pettibon is a South Bay artist that did most of the iconic artwork for all the SST Records bands like the Minutemen and Black Flag, and who's gone on to be like one of the most prolific and celebrated American artists, like a canonical American artist at this point. And a lot of his paintings deal with, well, his subject matter varies, but a lot of it is a mixed media of baseball, sort of political figures, cowboys, and surfing and his surf paintings are these like wild imaginative like hyperbolic waves with this really like intricate poetic scripture underneath that tells a story um and i think that's what we, we the, the cover graphic that we did was this big black and white painting of a guy surfing a wave and it said home of the brave and it was this story the whole issue was dedicated to like american surfing today uh, which I thought was kind of weird and cringy, but for it to be Petty Bond's text, it somehow like deflected it a little bit. <laughs> of course. Yeah, but, I'm getting schooled um, here too, by the way. I'm loving all this. Yeah, it's awesome. If you want to invest in one of the best books that's come out in the last year or two, as far as like surf, art, whatever, the new Petty yeah. Bond book, I think it's called Point Break that Rizzoli just did. It's like okay. the full collection of his surf paintings. Is Everyone should own that book. It's fucking incredible. Um, That's great. But then in that same issue, I was able to go and do that Sebastian Inlet story, which they sent me back to Florida, and I was able to drive around Central Florida interviewing Keckley and Bill Hartley and Larry Pope and all and Kelly and all these guys for that project. And actually, we ended up making like a really short little like four-minute documentary from some of the interviews and stuff that we pulled for Surfer, which was like the first surf film really that I made now that I think about it. I saw that. Um, yeah. And that story for me was like, I don't know, like I feel like the East Coast, like you guys surely do, has always been like a little bit of a redheaded stepchild from an international standpoint, but certainly from a California perspective. And if you look at Sebastian Inlet, like it's the best example of how the, the East Coast has had moments of like complete and total fucking dominance of surfing. And yeah. that that wave almost it, like alone created that many pipe masters wins and world champions and fucking East coast champions. And you know, like CT guys yeah. is one of those stories. Like everyone should know that it's, that's like, you know, fucking the Del Mar skate park or, you know, fucking mm -hmm. Burnside or it's one of those, those places that should be like seen as a monumental moment in surf history and a massive loss with its like whatever destruction. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, that was a very, uh, for me, it was like the most rewarding story I'd ever written. Yeah, that's cool. Um, like even just like interviewing Kelly and having him like tear up telling stories about being a little kid, like fishing with pieces of bread and the, off the jetty with his, you know, with his dad camping there. Wow. Uh, yeah. I was like, yeah, that's fucking Florida. You know, for totally people that yeah. don't understand it, like that's what it wasn't like. It wasn't kids growing up in California. It was a bunch of little redneck kids running around wild you know east florida yeah getting screamed at by trip freeman yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i've never surfed monster hole in my life 
Have you ever got it? Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I have. It's all okay. good. It used to it used to be like the thing for all the performance longboard guys in like the late nineties to go surf Monster Hole because Sebastian Dillon was like pretty fucking frowned upon unless you were Steven Slater to ride a longboard. <laughs> yeah. And you know you'd have heats. You'd be down there for a, for a contest. And you're like, fuck. I'm not gonna go like surf sh- like shitty shorebound like down at like third peak. Right. Monster Hole's like at least kind of breaking. You out there and be like, Ugh. but that's kind of what the waves feel like kind of by my house. Honestly, it's like. You're out in the middle of nowhere. Bullshit and backyard. Sketchy paddles. Oh, good God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Right on. Well, all right. Uh, well, that's, so that's led to stab. I would imagine eventually your, your, uh, your relationship with Sam. And do you want to give us some background on that? Yeah. So I, I was at surfer for like two and a half years. And at that point they were, they were owned by it was called the Enthusiast Network. Mm-hmm. It was part of a big umbrella group that owned surfing, trans world skate, trans world snowboarding, snowboarder magazine, like this, and then a bunch of like off-road magazines and mm. cycling magazines and all types of shit. And it was a fucking nightmare. Like it was like watching an old business model become irrelevant in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I was there right when surfing closed. Shortly after that, it was very apparent that there was like, there was no one steering the ship to modernize their business model or to even look at what they had. And Surfer was like the crown jewel of that that entire like umbrella right. brand. It was like the one thing that they could hold up and say, we own Surfer Magazine. What year was this? This would have been 2015, 16. Okay. That's kind of where I was guessing. Um, yeah, I think to, I think that Surfer Surfing closed in 2015, and Surfer stayed on for another two or three years. I think after that, mm. but after Surfing closed, I worked out like a little bit of a contract shift to where I could be like a editor at large. Me and uh, Xander Hartman, who had been I'm sorry, uh, Xander Morton, yeah, yeah, um, another Florida who was boy. at Surfing at the time. He came over to work at Surfer. Yeah, it's funny. Like there was this like real battle and animosity between surfer and surfing when I was there. And 
like they fucking hated each other. They wow. would fuck with each other. <laughs> Brendan Buckley, who's now the editor in chief at Stab, would like post. <laughs> I remember Buckley did. He sent out a mass email to the entire Enthusiast Network email blast and put up posters everywhere for the editor of Surfer Magazine's Dolphin Art Show, <laughs> and just like plastered all this like really like bright neon airbrushed dolphin art all over the fucking office. <laughs> And then, like, would, would like, print photos of him with his head, like, bigger and bigger and bigger Photoshop <laughs> each day. And just, like, constant, like, fucking petty fucking with each other. <laughs> and at the time, it was, like, me. Like, I have no, like, I'm just, like, I just got here. Like, I don't know any of this shit. Like, I also, like, I'm from Florida. And so immediately, like, all Floridians, like, moths to a flame. It was, like, oh, Jimmy Wilson, Xander, like, all these guys around him. I'm, like, oh, we're Floridians. Like, we're going to be friends. And so I was really close with all those guys. And so when they left, when they, when they when surfing closed, it was like fucking devastating. Um, and so there was a brief po- period where it was like, okay, well maybe we can just keep going the way we're going. At that point, they were down to like six issues a year, and they were like ninety pages or something like that. Yeah. It was bizarre. Yeah. And so I went to this like contract base so that me and Xander could both do sort of like the same sort of like workload, and it was like a certain amount of online stuff and a certain amount of print stuff. And so I was able to leave. I went to Europe for like two months and had this like wild, amazing trip that ended up connecting me to a lot of surfers. And I think in a weird way, setting me up for the job at Stab, just relationship wise. I was like, I spent a month bombing around Portugal, the Canary Islands, France and Spain with like Goni Zubizarreta and a few guys who were like the ambassadors of fun to Europe. And at the time there was all these different team trips going through. And so it was just like one thing after the other that we were skipping around to. And Goni ended up winning two QS events at the time, like while we were together and I got to go and spend time at the Pukas factory and do like a Facebook live tour for surfer magazine, like a week before their factory burned down, which ended up being like the biggest disaster in surfboard manufacturing history. But like they had this preserved like Facebook live tour of the entire place every single board like right before it happened mm. and i ended up like feeling like i had met everyone in europe by the end of that trip i remember leaving that trip and being like what like i could felt like i could go to any country in europe and have like a brother it was bizarre and that was sort of the back in the back of my mind i've always wanted that to be like the sort of the purpose of doing this job beyond making things that i'm proud of and doing things with surfers who i feel like deserve the attention yeah it was to really like feel like i've built relationships around the world in these places that i hope to return to a lot hopefully with my family and my kids and feel like they've got uncles everywhere and that trip was like so validating because i feel like i left and it was just like oh everyone that's that's cool i've never I mean, I've been to Europe a few times, and, uh, well, I guess Ireland. I spent some time in Ireland and stuff. Did you make it up there? I, You know, it's funny. I'm fucking, like, two-thirds probably Irish, right. English, and fucking Scottish. Yeah. And I've never been, but it's that's this this season of No Contest that we're working out. It looks like we're going to do Ireland, Basque Country, and Morocco in, like, one big, like, sort of chunk, oh, hopefully. Uh, epic. That this is completely tentative and not official, but if we can pull it off, that's what we're, that's what we're hoping for. That would be uh, great. I'd be on board. For that. I mean, that, there's something about that community and the uh, on the feeling the on the ground, it, you know, and and going in the water there. It's, it, I don't know. It's just it's probably like golf in a way. It's like holy land almost for me. And just the accessibility. If you fly there with a flexible idea of what you want to do, the accessibility of all those different 
landscapes and swell directions and all the things that you can play around with when you're in Europe. And especially now that I understand the Mediterranean a little bit more, like yeah. I feel like yeah. I am baffled at all the options. You can fly into Europe and jump on a plane to Morocco, or you can go to Senegal, you can go to Barcelona, you can go to Ireland, and all those places will turn on for like three or four days at a time. And flights within the EU are fucking cheap as chips. It's yeah. a joke. Uh, and I, that's one of those, another one of those trips that when I came back from that first trip, I was like, fuck, you can get like a $400 round trip flight from Orlando. Like, why wasn't I flying here my entire early twenties? You know how fun Europe would have been when I was like 25. Yeah. I mean, Portugal, look at, I mean, that's, it's epic. We're flying in Mikey Corker for a little, uh, he did a movie called Savage Waters and he's coming in for our screening on the fourth. So he, um. Is flying from Lisbon, and it was inexpensive. Yep. I have to say, it was like six fifty or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's minor. Yeah, I feel like there's no better place to. I'm a little biased, but um, I was fortunate enough to get to live in San Sebastian for a year during college. Like to me, there's no better city that you could base out of because you're kind of in the middle of all those things you talked about, and there's super fun waves right there, and you're up to Anglet and Hasagor real quick. And to me, the 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 coast. The north coast of Spain going the other way, past Mundaka, like that's still to this day. I, I feel like you could you could load up like an RV and drive around that corner down to Portugal and spend the rest of your life surfing waves by yourself. Like wow. there's so many setups out there. Galicia, is that what they call it? Yeah. Shit. Yeah, that's where where Goni's from. My really good friend. It's funny. I was just I literally got off the phone with the Ritz Aaron Brewer like two seconds before I got on the phone with you guys. And they've been scoring like the last two months. So Ritz doesn't stay put very often. Yeah. He's like, oh, it just, it just got stormy. And he thinks that the window that we're shooting for will be like a good call sometime the end of February, beginning of March. Nice. But yeah, those guys opened my eyes to so many waves in that area. It's wild. And it's, it's funny. You feel the difference. Like I'm sure you felt it going for up to France, like France like you drive around in a caravan and you get hassled and they get pissed if you're driving down their little roads or whatever. And then you go to Spain and people are like, do whatever the fuck you want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Park wherever you want. Like you can pull over on the side of the road and start a campfire. Like just be respectful of it. Clean up after yourself and like get the fuck out of there in the morning. And you end up in these places where like you wake up in the morning, you're looking around you're like, what is this place? Dude, it's like so raw and rugged and green and then the waves are heavy. You're like baffled yeah. at how like solid the surf gets. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, I, I uh, when I was at that program in San Sebastian, uh, Craig, that um, I'm drawing a blank on his last name. That the, he he was one of the founding guys at Sector Nine. Uh huh. Um, he was. On, he, I, I don't know Craig's last name. I've met Craig. I, I should know yeah, Craig's bl- last name. Yeah, He's epic. Yeah. Yeah, and um, another, and then he had a buddy that was also from San Diego named Thaddeus. Um, but yeah, Craig was there at the program and, and, uh, we had all gone in together on a little car and, uh, dro- and we were driving to Mundaka for a swell and we stopped, we got a tip from a guy in San Sebastian from the Puka shop and, uh, yep. we like drove off, drove off the road and drove through the woods and like, we're like, for sure we're lost, you know, and we park in the woods and hike and then you have to like climb down this cliff on a rope and. But you're standing there looking at the cliff, and it's like a perfect triangle of rock shelf, and there's nobody around, and it's like six foot, and it's like lowers, but with juice. And oh my god, we surf for two days. I'm not going to say the name of that wave. How sick is that wave? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's unreal. It's unreal. You know what I'm talking about. 100%. Yeah, yeah, the Ritz took me to that place. The same thing. It was like a little bit wonky for Mundaka, and it was like... We never even, met, felt like we I was, never even got to Mundaka. It was so good. They were like, we're not leaving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That place feels like something out of like a Princess Bride or something like that. It feels like yeah. something out of like Robin, like you're in like Robin Hood's woods with waves. Yeah, I, I want to go. Yeah, it was unreal. And then the, the next time we did actually end up at Mundaka, pulled into the parking lot at the church at like ten thirty at night, and there was a wedding going on, and they literally just like welcomed us in like we were part of the family, and we just partied with them all night, and then slept for a couple hours in the car, paddled out at like solid eight foot Mundaka. That I mean. Yeah, I could go on. I love that place. The the Basque people, I feel like the same thing as the like indigenous Hawaiians. It's the same feeling. People go there and they're like, "Fuck, the Basque country is gnarly. It's localized. It's this and that." It's like, well, did you fucking learn a couple words in in Basque? Did you learn how to say hi? Like, did you, yeah. you know, did you spend a little bit of time, or even Spanish? Uh, and they're the sweetest people on the planet, dude. They you know like they just want to be seen. It's simple. I, I, yeah. learned, I uh, learned the word pinchos, which pinchos. is basically tapas. You know, I learned uh, caixa palita. Yeah, which oh, Jesus pretty, Christ, pretty I don't know. Girl, what, I don't pretty know. girl. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> when I was in Germany, I learned was max du heute haben. Uh, but anyway, the, yeah, the, that's uh, the the most obvious example of uh, of like cultural smothering is the fact that everywhere has tapas restaurants and you never see a place that has pinchos anywhere outside of the Basque country. And right. let's be yeah. honest, pinchos are far superior to any bullshit <laughs> tapas you can find in Madrid. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You got that. Uh, all right. So I wanted to just bring up a movie that was really cool. in One of our festivals, Luca Murley made it called Nausicaa. Nausicaa. Anyway, it was a, a Mediterranean sailboat with some surfers on it it was just beautiful if you haven't seen it uh it's worth checking out uh, i think scott hewlett recommended it to us and it, i think it won yeah. the best soundtrack or uh, best surf movie short actually in 2018 so uh anyway you're on your way uh to writing with stab at some point and we dropped the storyline so do you want to go there oh yeah so that yeah so that trip i came back from europe uh, I was living in Los Angeles, more or less, sort of at the time, bouncing between L.A. and San Francisco. And I was hanging out with my friend, Matt Titone, who uh, runs Indoic. Have you guys ever met Matt? I haven't he met him, that, but I'm, I'm familiar uh, with Indoic. on yeah. surfing book and mm -hmm. surf shacks and all that stuff. So I was hanging out with him. Um, he knew what I was dealing with at Surfer. And at the time, we were talking about working on a few projects. And we went to go surf this like weird little like novelty sandbar in... Uh, in LA somewhere that doesn't really exist most of the time, but it was like this little secret little like lowers like sandbar in the South Bay that had formed and a couple guys knew about it. And I showed up and Damien Farron Fort and Sam showed up and I'd met Sam a few times over the years, just on the North shore at Malibu. He, he was living in LA at the time and we got along. He was um, at the time stab was owned by surf stitch and he was living in LA because part of the deal was that they, he would help, and you know, keep on as the publisher, and they were partnered with Swell.com. They had an office down in like Anaheim, and then they had this office right on the boardwalk, basically at um, at Venice Breakwater, like right at the skate park. Um, and yeah, Sam and I just started like we went out for a surf together and hung out. And that night, he hit me up on like he like slid into my DMs from Stab and was like, "Hey, it's Sam. Like, 
like, would you be interested in getting coffee? I'd love to talk about what you're doing. And so we went and got coffee and he pulled out his computer and showed me the first draft of that first dock project that they did where the guys from Volcom were running on the dock, like yeah. jumping into the, into that wave in Bali. Oh yeah. And he, he had that he had worked out this deal where he told Volcom if it doesn't, I forget what the number was. He's like, if this doesn't get X amount of views in X amount of time, like it's on us. Like we'll, we'll, we'll cop the whole bill for the whole fucking thing. And that thing like broke the internet the next week. But what we, what he was approaching me about was the fact that the company that had bought them that owned, that owned surf stitch and swell.com and magic seaweed and all these brands at the time, I think magic seaweed at the time, um, was like falling apart and he was buying it back with his partner, Tom bird and was interested in whether I was, whether I wanted to come on as their editor in chief and like what I would you know, be interested in doing at stab. And part of what we talked about was the idea of doing more like a premium subscription, uh, based sort of project and a lot more like long form film content. They had just finished filming the third stab in the dark with Jordy Smith. And up to that point, like the longest stab in the dark was like 25 minutes. And we were, they were just starting to, to like get into longer films. And so, I started there, I want to say in like August or September of 2017, probably now. I think okay. it was 2017. And it was me and Morgan Williamson, who was their managing editor at the time. And Morgan was running mm-hmm. the office out of LA. And it was pretty much just him and I and Mikey Ciramella. And Sam was living there at the time. And we were, he bought it back. We like, got up and running and within the first like six months we were doing the first acid test with Dane. We were doing stab high pretty quickly after that. It was just just like all of a sudden all these things started Mm -hmm. happening. And I think that our range started to expand and people started to expect longer piece of content, like more higher production value of films. And all of those things started becoming like sort of what we exchanged in. And it, it very quickly became two different jobs, like trying to be the editor of the site and write and to do surf films. And then Red Bull was interested in developing the, this behind this, the scenes show that they'd been doing on tour called no contest. That was sort of their version of tour notes at the time. Red Bull didn't have a partnership with the WSL, so they weren't able to like use any footage from the contest or any footage from the events. So it was their way of doing stuff with the athletes at each event that was non WSL branded and still took advantage of the fact that all their team was there. And Sam hit me and was like, Hey, they're interested in bringing on someone to be like a travel host. And I suggested you like, I think it'd be pretty difficult for you to do both jobs. Would you want to do it? Yeah. And I was like a travel host. Like, what do you mean? And at the time I was in Mozambique with Stephanie Gilmore doing the acid test. Yeah. And he's like, they want you to film a, like a little, a few test shots and like give a quick, like fake introduction to the show. And like, they just want to see you on camera. And so Steph was like, oh, let's do it. Like you fucking be perfect for this. You're like Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> and which Dane had said that too, was like the biggest compliment I'd ever been given. But I think they meant it as an insult. Cause I'm always just like offering up bits of useless information for the most part. But like, I don't know. I'm just like, you know, I have, a very broad range of cultural interests that I'm yeah, very happy a, to talk about. That's a hell of a compliment. I, I would take that all day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, Dane would get mad. We were doing the acid test with him, and I would, we'd be, like, shooting scenes where he has to, like, talk to camera and explain what he's feeling about a board or this and that. And he kept being like, fuck it. I'm not fucking Anthony Bourdain. You are. <laughs> and, uh, but, yeah, so we, I, we ended up doing this little test run where I was like, oh, we're here in Mozambique with Stephanie Gilmore. We're heading to the Gold Coast for the first event of the year. And, like, Steph was putting the boards in the back and, like, fucking with me while I was doing the shoot, you know? Yeah. And so it had a little bit of lightheartedness to it, and they sent it to him, and they're like, oh, it's perfect. Like, can, can he start, you know, on the first, you know, whatever, the first stop? Yeah. And so I barely even, I don't think I ever went back to California. We flew to do this crazy river surfing project that we did with vans that uh, take it easy on the Zambezi. Yeah, we yeah. showed that. Uh, yeah, we showed that. that we did that you guys showed. Yeah. yeah. So that trip got called on halfway through the acid test with Steph, and Sam Moody and I had to fly from Mozambique to Zambia to do that project. Then back to the U.S., like back to Joburg, back to New York, back to California, and then straight to Australia to do the first episode of No Contest. And I'm like fucking self-conscious hearing my voice in a project, <laughs> even though everyone assures me that it's not as awful as it sounds. It's beautiful. Uh, stepping in front of the camera and having to, to put yourself out there as like a fucking talking head was the most traumatic learning experience of my life. Definitely the biggest growing experience of my life, but it was fucking shocking how uncomfortable you feel in front of a camera. Um, and I still deal with it. I, you know, you'll see shoots where I'm like wearing sunglasses and it's like a fucking superpower putting sunglasses on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have your days and I would imagine you that you don't have your days. I tell you who is never. Oh, you gotta had be on. I don't, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I was just gonna say this guy has never had a bad day on camera. <laughs> On a microphone. I know. He's just like fucking. Oh, this was a, I thought this was a like lollipop. A switch. I didn't know it was a microphone. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. You got a future. I don't know if it's uh, pornography or <laughs> what, but you got a future. Uh, but yeah. All right. So this is good, man. I got the full background now. And I have read, you know, bits and pieces. I like for the fans to be able to hear where your background came from, where your toolkit craft was developed, and then also. Uh, who had the faith in you to, you know, put you in the place where you can really succeed. And that's where, I mean, you get to travel the world. You're, you're kind of, uh, you're in the zone when, when it comes to finger on the pulse of what's happening. And obviously off camera during contests is really cool, but uh, you know, the other stuff too, um, where you get to create and direct your own projects. And, and that leads us into the Andy project but I, I don't want to go dive too far into your history I wanted to mention Andy because I thought that four-part series behind the was one of the first things behind the paywall at stab premium and it was a doozy I, I loved every every one of them we actually had you turn the four plus hour project into a kind of a two-parter and we showed it um, at the festival in June of tw 2019 I want to say Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it was a big hit, man. I, it was Huge the Andy hit. movie that needed to be put together after Kiss by God was um, more of the memorial tribute, uh, you know, beware sort of uh, movie, and that this was the one that really needed to be made, and I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to say that. Uh, I felt like the, yeah. your movie was made for for the surfing audience. The Kiss by God was made for the mainstream audience, and they yeah. did a great job yeah. at that, but your story was the story that us as hardcore surfers wanted to see. Yeah. 
Yeah, good job. It's funny though, I, that project wouldn't happen without you guys. That project stemmed from sitting in your guys' booth at Surf Expo talking to Tupat and him telling me mm-hmm. about his his pokey sauce and cool. me being <laughs> like, that's cool. Do you have any old footage of Andy and Bruce and Corey and those guys sitting around? Like, the pokey sauce is killer. Like, we'll do that story, <laughs> yeah. but like, what do you got? And he's like, you know what? I think that Hopper's got like a box of tapes that we've never really gone through. And I was like, fuck you, send them to me immediately. Right. And he went home, packaged those things up and sent them to me. And that was right before the pandemic. It was like January of 2019. And I ended up spending six months of my own free time because no one else thought that there was another Andy movie to be made. They wanted to do a project that was about how if you pulled surfers now – 10 years after his death, whether they want to surf like Andy Irons or Kelly Slater, that everyone will say Andy. And that was like the simplicity of the argument that we were hmm. we were trying to make up front, was that like Andy's the most influential surfer of his generation, not Kelly. Kelly's the most winning, but everyone wants to surf like Andy. And I was like, yeah, but why? Like, why is that the case? That's yeah. the point. Like, show don't tell. Like, let's explain to them why Andy had that impact. Like, it wasn't just that he died young. It was that when he was alive... His surfing didn't look like anybody else's, and there's a reason for that. And so we started making this movie, and they were super skeptical that I was like somehow in cahoots with Mayhem, like just to make a lost documentary because <laughs> uh, it's all two Pat and Hopper's footage, you know. Yeah. But then other people started coming out of the woodwork, you know. Like two weeks into it, Jason Hatch, who was Andy's filmer, who grew up in Indian Rocks Beach and was Corey and Shay's filmer originally, hit me up. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've got footage from the last trip that he did to Cloudbreak before he won Chopu, like training for that event. And all of the behind the scenes footage from the last year on tour that I didn't want to give to any of the other projects. Like, Mm. what are you doing? I was like, fuck. So all of a sudden it was like I have all this raw material to tell the beginning story and I have all this raw material to tell the last year of his life. And it was just gathering the interim. And as we started getting into that, it became very apparent that there was like all these stories that were part of it that people wouldn't really put together if they weren't around for it. Like even myself that I didn't know, you know, like how big of an impact him riding for MCD did and like the team that he was around at that time and how formative of an experience that was. And yeah, the stuff that actually shaped him, not the like hiccups along the way of him being a loose living, you know, potentially like mentally unwell person at times mm-hmm. like the actual raw personality and talent that like shown through in his surfing and in his personality with his friends well that's why um that's why i feel your project so successful uh, obviously two pat's contribution was uh a big portion of that because it humanized the boys and i feel you know it you, you just don't get the same results without him having the camera on in the room and on the beach yeah. and uh it was such a wonderful, intimate look, and man, I mean, you, you got to pat yourself oh, man. on the back for that. My brother, and it was 2021, oh. by the way, when we showed it. Sorry. Yeah, 2021. Um, yeah, and I got to give my brother credit for that because he helped me a lot. He flew down. He had just had a kid. He flew down and spent a long weekend with me going through the tapes. And there's, these are like Shea Lopez's handy cam that he bought, and just like him walking around the log cabin's house filming all these guys like buying weed and fucking doing all the, you know, just like being kids. Right. And you see how innocent and fun and lighthearted it was. You know, there's this sense that people have this, you know, even when we were waking it, like 
one of the guys at Stab was like, God, it just makes me remember how like scary those guys were when I was showing him early drafts of it. I was like, scary? <laughs> like, yeah. what are you scared? Like, he's like, oh, Chris Ward, this and that. I was like, yeah, but like, you guys didn't have any friends that got really like angry when they were drunk. Like, that was part of growing up was like dealing with my asshole friends in Florida <laughs> that drank too much and became pricks. You know what I mean? Like, that's everyone's childhood. Everyone should, you know, everyone should have one of those people in their life to teach them a lesson. Little thick uh, skin, but, yeah. It helps. It helps to have a drunk in your formative life because you, it kind of helps 100%. you. It informs why you don't want to be a drunk later. And I have to say, a lot of people that I know that have had that unfortunate upbringing are uh, uh, not always, but you know, for the most part, they got a good head on their shoulders for sure. They're not going to go down the same path. Least. Yeah, I think you're a pro- you're a product or a reaction to your environment, yeah. and. You know, the, there's always the fear that like being around it's gonna make you want to do it. But a lot of times when you see it and it's bad behavior, you're like, oh, that's bad behavior. Okay, got it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there was and there was a couple other things to it that were like that for me were really like personally important. I do feel like after Andy died, like that whole generation just like atomized in the mm. public like sort of like view. Yeah. And it was like all my heroes were just like had these broken hearts and I remember going to the premiere for kiss by God and Bruce showing up late and you know, everyone being sort of like just uncomfortable mm-hmm. and not feeling good about it. You know, it didn't feel like everyone walked out of there like, Holy shit. Like they told the story of this guy who was our best friend, everyone's hero, the fucking greatest surfer of his generation. Like that it was this fucking cautionary tale and it sucks to be, like distilled down to that in yeah the we can't leave it eye. at that right you can't yeah you wouldn't it's like you'd make it's like making a movie about michael jordan's gambling addiction you know it's like yeah all right that's cool like it's there's a lot of fucking speculation and ins and outs and shit that we don't know it'd probably make for a great documentary but if there wasn't all this like incredible like work done about what made his career so important it would be insulting you know, it'd be fucking lazy yep. yeah. to not paint the whole picture. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, that's clickbait to me in documentary filmmaking form. It's like, oh, we're going to focus on this. Um, and so we had the freedom knowing that it was like a core surf audience, that we didn't give a fuck what the mainstream cared. It was just like, I want every surfer to understand where Andy Irons came from, who his friends were that he trusted, who those people were influenced by, and how their generation sort of happened. Because to me, that's like the like little latchkey kid blueprint for being a pro surfer. You go and you travel and you meet friends who you get along with that you can pool your resources and, you know, like become traveling brothers. Um, yeah. And the other part of it was that Corey Lopez to me, even though he never won a world title, was the gnarliest kid from Florida, in my opinion, of his generation and one of the best surfers in the world for such a long time. And I feel similarly that his like sort of profile diminished after Andy and was also a little bit usurped by Andy because he was so dominant. But I remember seeing a mirrored video of Andy surfing Goofy Foot and it's like unmistakable how identical him and Corey Lopez surf. I don't know if you've ever seen those clips, but they are exactly the same surfer. It did my head in the first time I saw it. And you do the same thing to Corey's footage and you mirror it. And it's like to a T, the same exact body movements, the same exact fucking structure. And Corey's still fucking alive. You know what I mean? Corey still like chases waves and is raising like prodigious 
children surfers okay. and shouldn't be diminished to like, oh, Andy Iron's buddy. It's like, it's fucking yeah. Corey Lopez, you yeah, know? Right. Yeah. And so I felt like oh, it, I feel. it, 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 it really showed them as who they were to me, which were like the two guys, you know, and the same with Wardo and Shay and the all, I mean, the, that whole group to me were like, those were, that was pro surfing to me. Those yeah. guys. Cool. Yeah. They could we're win a contest as a black sheep underdog and they would go chase the heaviest waves that like only boogie boarders would surf and like pioneer slabs and stuff. It's like, okay, that's a surfer. Yeah. We're lucky enough to get to see uh Corey and Shay still surf. They live right up this road from us. And, um, and yeah, and just, Shout out to Corey's kid, Luke, that, that kid, um, ne- never seen a nine year old adjust in a backside barrel to dodge the foam ball. But I, I saw him do it at Ponce one day and I was like, that kid's going to be whatever he wants to be in surfing. He's go. that, he's that good. That's kind of uh, how I feel about me at this point in surfing <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to go anywhere I want to go. Hey, uh, Ashton. And, we, and did both of them? Did both of them win U.S. championships this year, Luke and Alana? I believe so. Yeah, and that's what it's funny because Alana's actually. There was a period of time where Luke was a lot better than Alana, and then I feel like Alana almost maybe surpassed him for for her age. Like she just had an explosion and just became this phenomenal surfer in like a three or four month window. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, they're they're the uh, two of them are gonna dominate whatever they want to dominate, whether it's the tour or just surfing in general. Oh, I I see Corey with his kids, and I see a dude who like won the lottery. Yeah, like that's great. getting to live on his terms and have his like the the quality of life that he has back in Florida, and being able to give to his kids what exactly what Pete gave to them. You know, I yeah. grew up with my dad's really good friends with Pete, and uh. You can like look any different direction to how you want your life to go, but it's pretty cool the blueprint that guys like that laid out for their kids. And seeing Corey here in Hawaii when they had when they were staying at the O'Neill house and like sitting down at the bottom of the point or the bottom of the reef at pipe, like watching Luke get waves, like seeing them mirror image get backdoor waves when it was like small and playful. I was like, this is so sick. Yeah, cool. We uh we do a portion of this where we put everybody on the hot seat and say, do you have a great surf story for us? Uh, the name of the podcast is Surf Stories. You have provided already at least four or five really great stories, so I won't put you in the hot seat. But if you if you have anything that you've been thinking about or you want to reflect on surf just stories. absolute craziness or you know. Uh, it's just it, we usually like to give prompts, but funny, it, it, scary, yeah, both. I love anything like that. Let me How'd you meet your wife? You know, all that stuff is always kind of good. <laughs> buried some bodies, yeah, buried some bodies. Let me finish. Also, why you guys? The other part of why you guys made making the Andy movie so special. So you guys were the only people that I got to show the whole film to, which yeah. I thought was like a fucking gamble. You remember me going into it being like, I don't know if they're gonna sit for four and a half hours in Andy <laughs> Irons, like. Yep. I think it's good, but like giving people it in a break was so there was a reason. Like no one's ever watched a four and a half hour documentary ever, yeah. uh, and it was a testament to your guys' audience. But you guys showed that movie on my birthday, and showing up, hanging out with Shay and Two Pat and all those guys being there for it, and like having the second showing be like overbooked and more packed than the first one, and just the whole program that you guys run. It's like 
there's no experience that a filmmaker can have making surf movies that feels better than that experience. Like sitting up at the end of that movie, having Tupat talk about it and, you know, feel like he had a sense of ownership of it in front of his audience was like, fuck, this is the whole point. Like, this is it. Like, you know, like you can gauge any number of ways, like the success of your efforts, but like seeing an audience engaged and stoked on a project like that, that I know meant a lot to Corey and Shay and those guys. I was like, fuck, that was yeah. it. And you guys gave me that. So I appreciate that. Oh, you're very oh, welcome. Man. I think we can end yeah. there, right? I mean, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I, uh, I feel like that's uh, the whole reason why we started this whole thing. And, and the, well, what I want to really do for you guys now is try me. and take you guys. Well, now I want to drag you guys on a fucking surf film festival tour. I want to get you guys to go to Tel Aviv. I want to get you guys to go to London. I want to get you to go to San Sebastian. Like, you got to do it. And well, I, it's I got research, asked to, you know? Like, it's. I was going to say, Ashton, I, I, got asked, to. I got asked to program the Tamarindo International Surf Film Festival, which is not really like ours. Uh, we, we do this for the community. We do this for people who want to show up and experience movies in a setting that is just non-traditional and, and have a good time and, and bring everybody together and bring the filmmakers out, educate the public and all that. The, what they're doing at Four Down There is actually for a charity in Guanacosta called Sepia, and they, uh, they are providing help to families and single-parent families and, and teens at risk. Uh, in that community. And, and so I've, you know, decided to help them out. This is my third time helping them out. Their second one got canceled due to COVID the day before they were going to go live. And, uh, so to your point, taking a film festival on the road is attractive and, and I'm actually going to go down there for this one. I think, um, we just need to talk to my you wife better. real quick, <laughs> make sure she's cool. What with do you that. mean? There's, there's a, I'm going to tee you up for the Floripa Film Festival, too. My friends from Layback are doing a festival during the QS down there at Praia Mole in Florinopolis that you guys have to go to. They're doing it with Salinas uh, Hostels. They have this space right on the beach at Praia Mole wow. with this giant pool right across from the water and this like little underground like tunnel that goes to the beach with a bar right on the beach, a bar right on the pool, and this huge open space to show movies, and then an indoor skate park and venue to do, like, second screens. Wow. And I'm, a, I'm a, a, the hotel fully rented <laughs> out on the beach for the people that are coming. It'll be fucking bonkers. And they're just, they're looking, it's the first one they've done, so they'd be stoked for you guys to, like, plug them and let people know that it's happening and shit. Um, That'd be great, man. But yeah, Absolutely. The, dude, you, because you guys have a scene that represents most of the scenes that are not known as like surf centers of the world, you know, from the outside, but that actually have way bigger and core and more dedicated communities of surfers than people realize who, because there's not necessarily pumping surf all the time, they're way more interested in the cultural side of stuff and they want to show up to events and support stuff like that. But I can guarantee you'll have a good time in Brazil. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah, my wife used to work for Sundance. She was kind of helpful on this on this festival, actually. So uh, our our model was always the. You want to you want to rephrase that? Kind of helpful. How helpful was your wife on this <laughs> <Yeah>. festival? <laughs> Let's just gonna, say our partner gonna... deck looks real good, thanks to her. And uh, we you know, we have we have been a uh, fan of that festival. Been a few times and modeled our format, and we try to just keep the uh, 
you know, the Q and A's, uh, after the movies, you don't want to talk really to filmmakers before the movies, maybe a quick introduction, but other than that, it's, there's, there's a lot of nuanced shit that you can pick up if you actually go to some festival where they're doing it right. And, uh, man, I just, I feel like we've been lucky. We've worked hard. We've made a ton of mistakes. And, uh, w- when it culminates in a coming back from COVID, for after a year of not having any public sort of things going on really whatsoever to uh to your movie and then i think the next night we had lisa anderson and girls can't surf out mm-hmm. uh, yeah which is i mean that was one of the highlights of john and i's thing you know doing this thing and and anyway that was great but yeah we are bumping up against it uh why don't we just save your surf story for unless you got one next time next time next time, next next time, time. it is all right because yeah, I I've, I see us coming back on here and having another chat at some point. Anytime, you guys. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, dudes. Thanks, man. Um, and it. the the thing I'm most exciting excited about is uh, let me rephrase that. The thing I'm most excited about is the next time that I get to come and show a movie with you guys. Yeah. Or to just be on the jury, the whole thing, all of it, anything you guys need me for, I'm there. Yeah. Uh, well, we should mention that you have served on the short jury for. A number of years now. I want to say at least six years, maybe. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's been, maybe you were on the feature jury one year or two. We like to switch them up every once in a while because we'll, it's hard to watch, sit down and watch nine, ten hours of movies inside of a month. And uh, Dude, I mean, the, it's the, the fucking best thing ever when I can say, sorry, I got to go watch these surf movies. Oh, uh, <laughs> there you go. Great. Thanks, man, for doing that. And thanks for coming on today. Of course, man. Uh, like I said, anytime. Keep up the great work. All right, it is always a pleasure to chat with Ashton and um, from his new home on the North Shore of Oahu, um, long way from the Gulf Coast of Florida, but uh, man, what a cool life he is leading right now. Yeah, no kidding. He's mixing it up all winter, and then during the summer, probably finding a few nooks and crannies to. Or well, he's traveling a lot. He's traveling too. a bunch, yeah. yeah. Doing the, the no contest series, um, which is phenomenal. If you haven't had a chance, definitely check that out. It's a, it's like behind the scenes, uh, outtakes from these uh, WSL events, you know, around the world. What what they're doing on their lay days and things like that. It's really cool. You know what's funny is I I heard. Uh, the, the most extreme critics of the WSL, that would be David and Chaz, uh, yep. claim that the best shoulder content, best shoulder content around the WSL was not made by the WSL, though it was, in fact, made by Ashton Goggins. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And uh, to get a compliment out of those guys is pure gold. Uh, Absolutely. And Ashton yeah. does produce um, some of the best content out there, period. We've shown a couple of his films that he's done with Stab at the festival. Take it easy on the Zambezi. Was yeah. That, that was yeah, really cool. That was one of Probably his. the most gnarly river wave I've ever seen. Yeah, that was nuts. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, the Andy doc, as I said already, it was the one that was meant to be made. Um, the, uh, the temper, the tone the celebratory nature of Andy's short, unfortunate uh, life, but glorious life was uh, the movie that I wanted to see. It was and the movie that was made for us as surfers. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the other one was made for, you know, the mass public. This yeah. one was made for us. It was a, a more intimate look 
in the Andy that we knew as surfers. And so, yeah, it was super well done. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine what it's like when you finish a project like that to sit down in front of a real audience and feel their reaction and not have to um, guess what everybody's doing in front of their monitor or phone. And I feel like that's our real value, Adam. I'm going to pat myself on the back for 10 years of this because absolutely, I I know that you pat you on the back too, that we've actually taken um, the opportunity to try to get as many filmmakers as we, as there as we can. Some people would rather see athletes maybe or talent. Like this is, this is what we love to do for you guys. And mostly for us, like, there could be two people there, <laughs> and I'd be fine with it. But yeah. honestly, Ashton, way to go! Um, you you bring us entertainment all year long. You're doing a great job. Keep up the hard work, and uh, well, yeah, I mean, have a great season. Yeah, I'm I am certain that we will be seeing a lot more content from Ashton, and uh, I'm certain that it'll be fantastic. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, thanks again for coming on the podcast, Ashton, and, and to everybody else. Thank you to our sponsors for uh, making this happen. Uh, Rourke, Sunbum, Globe, Yeti, the uh, lawyer dude in Daytona Beach. Josh, Josh Wagner. Josh Wagner. The lawyer dude. You know, you got to love him. He's coming on strong. Brian Lehman and... Uh, Red Dog. And Red Dog, absolutely. Clancy's. I mean, Tom Macaluso, Anson Stoner. How about that 10-year design? Oh, yeah. Phenomenal. That new trailer is epic. Oh, yeah. The new trailer is great. All right. We're so lucky to have that support because we couldn't do it without them. So thanks, everybody. We'll, uh, um, can't mention everybody, but uh, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, see you next time. Peace.